There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Everyone, I'm East Dockery from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm on the line with my co-hosts Kevin Parrish from Bowie State University in Bowie, Maryland, and Bill Roden, who is an alum of Morgan State University in Baltimore, but currently resides in New York City. How are you guys? Hey, I'm doing well. That's good. So did anyone see that third presidential debate that was held at HBCU? It was at Texas Southern University. So did that mean anything to you or your peers? Absolutely. I think it's pretty cool that they had a debate at HBCU. And it's a step in the right direction. And um, I actually did a piece about that on on the undefeated. Yeah, I think it was great, too, uh, East. You know, I mean, anything that could put HBCUs in a great spotlight. Um, is uh, is I think as Kevin said, I think it's very positive. So I thought it was I thought it was outstanding. What did you think? I think it's great that they're acknowledging us and trying to hear our voices. So anytime that we get to be heard, I feel like that's great. But moving on, we've got a great lineup for you today. First up, we'll talk to Jason Reed, senior NFL writer at the Undefeated, about the site season long series on black quarterbacks. Reed, our very own Mr. Roden, and others are looking at what it means on and off the field to have five black quarterbacks leading NFL teams. Then, in the second half of the show, we'll talk to Monique Smith, who teaches sports marketing at Hampton University, about the Fair Pay to Play Act, also known as Senate Bill 206, the controversial bill that just passed in California and what it might mean for the future of college sports. Let's get right to it. The NFL season is underway, and those of us who are still watching have a lot to talk about. Aside from Cam Newton's outfits and the controversy surrounding Antonio Brown, several franchises are being led by black quarterbacks. Not to mention that the reigning MVP is a black quarterback, one of the highest-paid players in league history is a black quarterback, and the number one overall draft pick is also a black quarterback. The Undefeated's Year of the Black Quarterback Series will not only be paying attention to how these players perform throughout the season, but we'll be looking out for how they are covered by the media and if their presence is signaling any social changes within the league and the country. The latest installment is about the upcoming matchup between Cardinals QB Kyler Murray and Ravens signal caller Lamar Jackson. They are talented and are among the youngest quarterbacks in the league. Senior NFL writer... Jason Reed wrote the story, and he's on the line with us today. Welcome to the show, Jason. Well, thank you very much. So before we jump into the serious stuff, do you have any comments on Cam Newton's fashion style lately? Well, Cam is obviously somebody who has his own fashion style. He's he's uh, very distinctive. I mean, there's no doubt when you see Cam Newton at the uh, lectern before games or after games, it, it's very clear that Cam goes his own way. Um, it's not the way I would roll, but he definitely takes a lot of pride in in having his own fashion sense. And hey, I don't think you can knock a guy who knows who he is and is comfortable uh, in his own clothes, so to speak. <laughs> you mean you wouldn't wear that hat? Not me, Bill. But but you know, I, I'm not hating on him though. 
So why did you decide to write the Year of the Black Quarterback series? Well, it really came out of conversations that I've been having with NFL executives for, for many years uh, about just the things that were going on in the game at the quarterback position. And back in 2012, I worked at the Washington Post, and I, I was a columnist at the Washington Post, and one of my primary duties was uh, Redskins coverage. Um, and Robert Griffin III had an incredible year that year in 2012. He was the uh, Associated Press Offensive Rookie of the Year in the NFL. And you saw the, the possibilities of a true dual-threat quarterback in the NFL who could operate at an extremely high level. So just moving forward to this year and talking with some executives and some scouts I know, you know, there's never been a, a year in the history of the NFL where the reigning MVP was a black quarterback and there was also another black quarter, active black quarterback who had an MVP award because before, excuse me, before Steve McNair shared the award with Peyton Manning in 2003, no black quarterback had ever won the Associated Press NFL MVP award. Cam Newton won the award in 2015. So you went from 2003 to 2015, but then Patrick Mahomes won the award last year. So that really got me thinking about the, the fact that, okay, we're at a place now where there's a, the rating MVP and another black, quarter, another black quarterback both have MVP awards. Russell Wilson was recently eclipsed as the highest player in the league by Rams quarterback Jared Goff, but coming into the, coming into the training camp in the preseason, Russell Wilson was the highest paid player in the history of the NFL. And additionally, we now have what, are, what would have to be considered true franchise quarterbacks in Deshaun Watson and Dak Prescott, guys who are going to get contracts in excess of $100 million. Now, and there's a difference in the NFL between somebody who's just playing quarterback and a franchise quarterback, a quarterback that the teams that they're on say, this is our guy, we're going all in behind him, we're going to do everything we can to get to the Super Bowl with him. And so those three factors, multiple black quarterbacks who have MVP awards, the highest-paid black quarterback in the history of the NFL, the the presence of other true elite black quarterbacks who their teams are, are currently behind, all those things basically added up to me that, okay, well, this is a, this, we're, we're at a different point right now. And, you know, having talked to scholars and, and other people who follow this, we have thought we were at different points previously. You know, when, our, when Robert Griffin III had his great year and Russell Wilson was also a rookie that season, there have been other points where you, know, you thought, okay, this is, this is an inflection point. Something else is happening here, and it's different now. And so I was very – I wanted to be very careful and really talk this through with a lot of people because you don't want to have a, another false situation where we, where we thought that things had really changed, but, but there was still a lot out there that was the same. So I think with the presence of all of these pastors who are at such an elite level and these teams are behind them, I think it is different. Now, having said that, and I, I tried to make this clear in the first piece, I would never try to argue that racism in the NFL no longer exists. I mean, I think that anyone who would try to argue that, especially in, in light of the Colin Kaepernick situation, I think you'd have to be, you know, that'd be pretty foolhardy to try to argue. But I go back to Doug Williams, who was the first African-American quarterback ever drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Doug is now the senior uh, player personal executive for the Redskins, and Doug said to me, look, Jason, I'm in these rooms. Like, 
you know, 30 years ago, people, you know, things were said. But in these rooms now, it's like, hey, if this guy can play, we have to go get him. Now, are there people in the media who still have bias? Are there people in the general uh, population of fans? Of course. I mean, we saw a lot of the racism around Cam Newton when he was coming out. And people actually were debating, will will Blaine Gabbert be better than Cam Newton? But the thing that Doug really impressed upon me is, is that in these rooms where the people are actually making the decisions, it has changed. And, you know, when Doug Williams tells me something like that, I'm going to believe it. Hey, Jason, this is Kevin. Um, since you were talking about Dak's contract, I wanted to know, what do you think was, is the right compensation for a player like him? Because I know he wanted $40 million before. What do you think about that? Well, Dak is going to get a, a massive contract, a massive guarantee. Uh, I, I don't think Dak is going to get more than Jared Goff. Is Jared Goff was the number one overall pick, um, and he has gotten to a Super Bowl. So I don't think Dak will be the highest-paid player in the game. But I definitely think Dak will be in the top five of NFL quarterbacks when when it's all said and done with his contract. And that's a pretty good place to be. So, basically, yesterday we had two black quarterbacks playing against each other, and last Sunday we had a black quarterback and a black head coach. So, at what point, you know, do we stop counting these numbers? When do we say that progress has been fulfilled? Well, I think that's, well, that is a great question. And it's one of the things I debated and when I, when I brought up with – that I debated internally with myself when, when I brought up this series. And the, the answer that I came up with is that we are still at a point, definitely in American society and within the NFL, that a black quarterback is more of an oddity than something that, that, that's the rule. And, and what I mean by that is, is that the NFL has 32 teams. And, yes, there's been a lot of progress made in terms of African-American quarterbacks no longer – being just excluded regardless of talent. So there's no question about that. But I think that where we stop bringing this up at all is when it's not something that is still unexpected to see. Three African-American quarterbacks in the history of the NFL have won the MVP award. Now, is that because there just weren't, there weren't African-American quarterbacks good enough to win it? No, what, what, what had occurred was is that if you deny people an opportunity to do something, then once they get in the ranks of, that, that they were excluded from, it's going to take them a while to get to a point where, okay, they're showing that they're just as good as everybody else. It's like anything else. You deny a person an opportunity or a group an opportunity, well, that group is going to take a much longer time, just no matter what their intellect is or no matter what their talent is, to be able to rise up with everyone else in that group that was keeping them down. So for me... I do think there's a point where we can, where it's no longer going to be necessarily noteworthy, but just the mere fact that we have never had so many elite level black quarterbacks, who the, the consensus is that they are elite level and who are going to reach a, a financial peak in this in this game, I think that we're still not at a place where, at least for me, it doesn't matter. Right, I'm really intrigued by the language you know, surrounding black quarterbacks. And, uh, you know, I listened to the broadcast uh, when um, when Tampa Bay played um, uh, Carolina. I don't know. If, I just seem sometimes that it's, it's very kind of hyper, not hypercritical, but very critical, you know. Um, and it's not that it's un, un, unjustly critical, 
but like very critical. You know, um, at one point, oh, neither one of these guys, oh, the ball's all over the place. They're just so inaccurate and they're just so this and so that. And A, do you pay attention to the language? And I guess there's always a, a possibility that like we all can be a little over, overly sensitive. But do you pay attention to the language? Yeah, Bill, you just threw out a lot, brother. Let me, let me try to unpack some of that piece by piece. Yes, I do pay attention to the language. And to your point, I'm in Bristol right now because I had to go do something at ESPN uh, on campus. And I got to my hotel room last night, and the game was, the game was over. And I was listening to uh, you know, some of the commentators talk about what had happened. And one person said that this person brought up how Cam dresses. <laughs> and and he was trying to give Cam a compliment, and, I, and it just really struck me because what he was talking about was he said, "Well, hey, Cam Newton really went to the to the podium tonight and took blame for the offense, and you know you can talk about the way you know he, he dresses, but he he really you know showed leadership here." And I was just like, "Wait a minute! <laughs> like, first of all, how he dresses is irrelevant to the conversation, <laughs> right. but beyond that, Cam Newton." has an NFL MVP award, the Associated Press MVP award. Cam Newton has one of those. Cam Newton led a team to the Super Bowl. Cam Newton is going to the Pro Bowl. Cam Newton has won playoff games. So it just struck me that, okay, he's trying to give Cam Newton a compliment, and he probably doesn't even know because of his own implicit, not understood bias, that what he is saying is a completely backhanded compliment. You're talking about how a man dresses, and he's now showing leadership because he stood up to take responsibility for how bad the offense was. Cam Newton is already showing leadership. The man won an MVP award. The man has won playoff games. How he dresses is completely irrelevant. And, and I, I would offer that a black quarterback would not be spoken about in that same manner. And so when you talk about a bill about the broadcast, I totally get that. And, you know, you're, you're a little older than I am. Uh, and I'm older than, than all the Roden fellows. Mm. So I, I, we're coming at this from a different generational standpoint, but at least I, I can say that people from my generation and Bill's generation, we still know, like, like what the, what the struggle has been. Not, and not to say, I don't know if I'm putting this the right way, but I'm not saying that young people today don't know about the struggle, but like, I know, you know, what, what things that like people like Bill and, and, and hit people his age and, and my parents. So I don't want to be overly sensitive to it, but I also know that that type of language is still out there on these broadcasts. And so, you know, you talk about when is it no longer necessary that we highlight what we're doing and we, we talk about where we're at. When that type of language is no longer spoken, then I can say, okay, yeah, well, maybe now we're at a point where it's completely done away with, but we are not there yet. Like, let's say in 19... 19- like 66 or something and there was like a black like there's there's not a black middle linebacker and so when when Willie Lanier came around people wow you know that's really wow Willie Lanier man a, a middle linebacker that's really something and then there were two and so now you know in 2019 nobody even I mean you'd be what you talk about is if there was a white middle linebacker you say oh wow there's a white middle linebacker or there's a white cornerback you know so you get to this point well, you don't talk about it because it's just ridiculous, you know, because you wouldn't talk about having a black defensive back, you know, because it's just, you know, you know, so the question is when you have 
28 of the 32 quarterbacks are black and everybody is just kind of okay with it, then it just it does not become a conversation. But I'm wondering if the, if the league can sell that. Well, I know we're not at that point yet. In, in my opinion, we're never going to be in a colorblind society. And I remember when Robert Griffin III was blowing up in Washington, D.C., I had a colleague, a good friend of mine, a white guy who was writing a book, and we would have conversations, and, and, and he said to me, he was writing a book on Robert Griffin III, he said to me how Robert Griffin III is the, post, is the first post-racial superstar. Oh, wow. And I stopped him and said, whoa, whoa, my man, hold on. I was like, black people don't believe in that. <laughs> like, black people don't believe in this concept of post-racial. Now, remember, this is when Obama was in office, right, and right. there was this feeling, or there, there was, or there was, there are all these fake pieces written about, well, racism is over. And like black folk, and again, I'm older than you guys, so I'm coming from from my generational standpoint. But black folk are like, nah, nah, nah. You know, it, it, that's not over with because like if you're driving down the street in the, in, in the wrong area, you know, we're still stopped. And that's happened to me many times. So I, I'm telling you, I'm talking about the story with my friend who was writing this book. And, and I said to him, black people don't believe in that. And he's like, well, just because you and I are older, Jay, like, you know, you, we're from a different time, but like, he is the first post-racial superstar. I said, and I told my friend, I said, listen to me, I can guarantee you this. He starts to play poorly. He will be black again. <laughs> right. And, right. And, and, and what happened was, I mean, he, he did start to play poorly and for, for a variety of reasons, some of it self-inflicted, but the reality, you know, some of it was injury, but the reality is, I mean, people did start to criticize him. And I remember reading a lot of those tweets. And, like, I'm not saying that we are not in a better place in many respects than we were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, obviously, you know, out, uh, you know outright segregation has ended. Um, there's a lot of things that are better now than they were previously. Right. But, like, no, we're not at a point where it no longer matters that black men at, at the at the most important position of the of, in the game, a position that historically we, we were den- we were prohibited from playing because we lacked the intellect, the physical ability, and the and the the heart to command and lead other men. We are not at a point right now where it where it no longer matters that black men are excelling excelling at that position like never before, and and more importantly like many white people never thought they could. <laughs> right. Now, by the time this comes out, Baltimore will have already played Arizona. You were at the Arizona game. Just some of your thoughts about what Sunday's game may mean and why you're excited about it or why you, you, know, why you think it's important. Yeah, Bill, I'm excited about it because it's the youngest matchup of African-American quarterbacks in an NFL game in the Super Bowl era. Both Lamar, Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray are 22 years old. Uh, I just wrote a story about this. They're going to be t- combined age 44 years and 290 days on game day. And for me, you know, in a year where we're, we're, talk, we're, we're highlighting black excellence at that position, the fact that you have two black men who are 22 years old, both Heisman Trophy winners, both people who were, you know, well, Lamar was drafted at, at lower in the first round, but Kyler was the number one overall pick. And both of these teams have gone all in on these guys. I mean, Baltimore shipped out Joe Flacco, an MVP, a Super Bowl MVP. The, the, the Arizona Cardinals, a year after drafting Josh Rosen in the first round, shipped him out and then used a number one overall pick on Kyler Murray. So what it shows me is, is that 
like Doug Williams was saying, now it's like, hey, look, can these guys, can they help us win? Right. It's not about the color. It's can they help us win? And I'm excited to see this matchup because, first and foremost, they're both exciting young players. But additionally, what it shows, I think, is another metric on how far the game has come because these young black quarterbacks are now being handed the keys very early. And it's like, okay, you guys go out there and, and we're investing in you and you do it. So I think it, I think it says a lot about the times we're in right now and just about how quickly black quarterbacks have gotten to this level. I mean, remember, Dickey was drafted in 1968 in the old common NFL-AFL draft. He went to the Oakland Raiders. Doug Williams is the first African-American quarterback to be selected in the first round of the NFL draft. He didn't get picked until 1978. Hmm. So think about this. From a span of 1978 to 2019, black quarterbacks now are on a level in this game where no one can deny any longer that, hey, these guys, are, are, they're not black quarterbacks, they're just great quarterbacks. Right. Hey, Jason, I'll have one last question for you. So we know you're an NFL writer, but do you have any thoughts of any upcoming outstanding black quarterbacks who may get drafted, such as Jalen Hurts? Well, I mean, Jalen Hurts uh, is obviously, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, he's a guy who could win the Heisman Trophy this year. Everybody knows his story. He was at Alabama, uh, graduated, went to go play at Oklahoma because of uh, Tua, the kid who's now, who, who, took, who took his spot and led Alabama to a, to a championship game victory. So Jalen Hurts, um, there's a young man at Ohio State, but he's a guy who obviously is showing a lot of promise. Um, so I don't expect that. I don't expect this to change. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is, is extremely young. Uh, Kyler Murray and Lamar Jackson are 22 years old. Uh, Cam is getting up there, and Russell's getting up there, but I think they're going to still keep playing. Deshaun Watson is young. Um, we haven't even talked about Haskins, who in 15th overall draft pick, Dwayne Haskins, 15th overall pick for the Washington Redskins. He's now a backup, uh, but a lot of promise there. So in terms of both being drafted and young guys still coming up, I think we're going to be seeing this for a while. Before we let you go, we have some few fun trivia questions for you, if that's okay. Okay. All right. Today is the anniversary of the death of what iconic rap artist? Oh, today's Pac. Correct. Um, what current rapper is on a remix of Lil Nas' song, Penny, that was released today? The Baby or J. Cole? J. Cole? Nope, The Baby. Yeah, you know what, man? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, I have no idea on that one, but go ahead. Okay. What's the next one? Last question. To poke a joke at the discontinuation of spicy chicken sandwiches, Popeyes launched the marketing concept of BYOB, which stands for bring your own what? Bun or bread? Bread. Nope, bun. Okay. Good guess. Okay. <laughs> All right. we'll, we'll still get you, okay. for being on the show, um, we'll, we'll get you a Kentucky Fried Chicken Sandwich. You know, man, donate to one of the fellows, man. I remember being in college, and it was it was hard to, you know, have money to get eat stuff all the time. So donate to one of the fellows, okay? Okay. Yes. Thank you so much, Jason. Hey, Jay, thanks so much, man. Anytime. Anytime, guys. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss the pros and cons of California's pay-for-play act. So stay tuned.
Last week, California passed Senate Bill 206, also known as the Fair Pay-to-Play Act. This bill would allow college athletes to earn money from the use of their name, images, and likeness for marketing purposes. This is a big deal for teams in the Golden State. These teams bring a lot of money from fans and advertising. The bill was embraced by California Democrats and Republicans, but the NCAA fiercely protested it. At least 23 California institutions have a Division I NCAA team. Four universities are members of the Pacific 12 Conference, and one is a Power 5 school. The athletic organization, which made over $1 billion in revenue last year, said the bill could potentially kill amateur athletics if it becomes a law. The bill has been held as a game-changer by some, by LeBron James, but it raises a lot of questions about how athletes in California and beyond will be impacted. Here to help us make sense of it all is Hampton University professor Monique A.J. Smith. She's been a sports management professional for 30 years and spent 13 years working as an associate commissioner for the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Welcome to the show, Monique. Thank you so much for having me. I am a proud Hamptonian. So do you think that the California Pay-for-Play Act is a good idea? I think it's a great idea because... First of all, higher education is to provide experience for our students to be productive in the workforce. And today's workforce is very entrepreneurial. And many of our students are not necessarily able to do an internship traditionally, but if they can do something entrepreneurial that is uh, monetize their skill sets now, that will assist them to be successful after graduation. So do you feel like this would possibly uh, kill amateur athletics? Let's back up to where the student-athlete idea of amateurism came about. It only came about from the very first executive director, uh, Myers, who was trying to uh, elude being sued because a student-athlete was killed. And uh, he said that they were not an employee they do not fall under the premise of being able to be uh, sued and to be paid for compensation. So he came up with the term student-athlete, and then the amateurism came to explain about student-athlete. So uh, let's talk about why why did we uh, go professional for the Olympics. Amateurism is not the same as providing opportunity for a young person to have a livelihood. Because that was that's, that was the premise when we started with the Olympics, but you see we changed that. We need to win in the area of, of entrepreneurship for our student-athletes. We need to be winning in that area. Um, Monique, what do you think um, this bill means for the future of college athletics? It means you need to uh, revamp some of your bylaws and how to go about doing that. We're not talking about going out and being um, going out and making big dollars. What we're talking about is for a young person uh, who has a skill set and can have a camp in the summertime and be able to have that money. We're talking about student-athletes being able to have a podcast such as this and be able to have sponsorships. The the issue has been about likeness and using your skill set for what you are already uh, participating in sports with and not being able to monetize that. And you got young people now who've got great ideas 
and can't go out to test the market because it will affect their eligibility. And yet and still, the general student population, we're talking about entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, but we're stifling them. And so if you're going to just think about you just a student athlete, how can we change their image to understand that you are more than that? Let them test that out. I mean, we always change rules. I've been a, I'm a 30-year uh, veteran athletic administration. I've seen rules change continuously. And, it, and, the, and the, the California piece lends itself to have so much time span before it becomes effective for the NCAA to catch up. I've served on several NCAA committees. They have a task force for everything. This can be done because it is student-athlete welfare. It's not putting money in the kid's pocket. Because if you ever seen an entrepreneur, you have to go out and test it and market and test it and market. It's highly unlikely. I'm not trying to make a, a, a student-athlete a millionaire, and I'm not talking about shoe deals. I'm talking about them being entrepreneurial and testing the market so that they can be successful after their playing days are over. Do you think um, student-athletes should be paid? Now, I, I, I have a different mindset on that. I'm not talking about the college paying for We're already in a market with the have and have not. And uh, I'm talking about using the education that you receive in college and testing the market uh, from an internship, entrepreneurial perspective. Uh, if you write a book and you can go and test that out and learn how to do a book signing, and get paid for that. Now, you know, to make the to, to publish a book is going to cost some money. So it's not like we're trying to make people rich. We're trying to get them to have an educational experience in college so that when they finish, they don't have to start from scratch to be saying, I've just been a student athlete for four years, and I don't know how to go sell myself. I don't know how to, to do anything but be a student athlete. But guess what? He's been a student athlete and learned how to make money from that by being what he's been trained to do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. How do you feel, uh, you know, as, as a Hampton alum and a HBCU with, with, you know, Blue Blood and all of that, how did you feel about Hampton leaving uh, the MAC? Uh, it's kind of a big, I know it set tremors through the HBC landscape, but what would you think? Well, if you look at the big picture and you look to see, let's just, let's just take basketball uh, basketball has been quite successful. But the way uh, the brackets are made, that you are seated based on your conference, then I say about your institution. And as you can see, all HBCUs always get the lower seat. And so if you want to be in the mid-seating, you be me being a mid-major conference. And that's what that's all about. You know, how are we are going to be seated in the play to win a national championship? Mm -hmm. so, so I know, you know, in football, for example, you've got um, uh, the Celebration Bowl because a lot of the HBCUs felt that it was just better to sort of define themselves. Uh, what what would you think about HBCUs in basketball? You know, the CIAA, the MEAC, SIAC, kind of doing their own thing and having their own basketball tournament, postseason tournament, because it's not like they're ever going to win the national. They're, they get low seeds. They get slaughtered. only thing they get is like maybe one of them may get a check. But what what would you think about them doing their own, having their own postseason tournament? 
Well, Bill, I have a bias. I worked for the CIAA for 13 years. I was social commissioner, and I was on the planning committee for the Pioneer Bowl uh, for the top division two post-championship between the SIC and the CIAA. Uh, and I worked for one of the largest uh, tournaments in the nation. And so I will be a little biased with that kind of answer. Mm. What do you mean biased in what way? What my thoughts on that? Bias that you like to see it? Because I worked there. I gave my blood, sweat, and tears with that. And so my thought process is going to be where I left some of my my good years of my life. Mm. So so you're saying you would not, you'd always like to see a CIAA tournament? No, I don't. I don't. I don't say. I, I'm not saying get rid of that. I'm saying, but it's it's. Uh, I, I believe in the celebration bowl. I think I've been two years, and it's a great celebration, and they've done a good job because they got good buy-in from corporate, and I think that's that's the key. And, and they do things so that uh, all the student athletes do feel that they're in the celebration bowl. They're getting the same items that you would get from an NCAA postseason play. If you can do it to the caliber of an NCAA playoff, I see. yes, I, I agree with that. And it, and it, it calls for buy-in from corporate America. Uh, so if you get all the schools buy-in, you get corporate sponsorship, it's going to be televised, um, you get the same mm-hmm. You get the same sort of hoorah, um, uh, even if right, it, it could right, be a right. largely black celebration. But you as long as it's a big deal, make it a big deal. Right, exactly. And the kids can't tell the difference. Right. That they, that all they know is they're in postseason play. <laughs> and that's all they care about. Right. And can win a title. Because, you know, you go to the, you go to the, right. the NCAA tournament and you're seeded 16 and you're playing like the undefeated UConn. I mean, you're going to get, every year you get destroyed. Right. You know, what's, what's the, I don't know, what's the fun of that? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. You know, the legendary Dr. Harvey saw, where twice his team has gone past the first round, and he's like, "Okay." And every time we came up from a lower seed, let me put my, let me because that, that's the only thing about leadership. You try to supply the best situation for your coaches. As a visionary, he says, "Let me be in a conference that will allow me to be mid-major," and uh, I got closer steps to the national championship. NCAA President Mike Emmert has insinuated that California institutions will be excluded from championship games if the bill was approved. Um, do you think he can really do this, or do you think he's bluffing? Um, I believe that both parties understand the win-win. Uh, if the bill passes, there's enough time in there for the NCAA to put provisions in there for California schools to compete and but any other states that want to follow suit can do the same thing. So South Carolina legislators recently announced that they plan to file a similar proposal to um, this act. So do you think mm-hmm. um, more states will follow? Absolutely, because it becomes a recruiting tool at this point. You know, and you think about, you go back, back why was the bill put in place? You have several students who decided, if I got to pick between me developing a livelihood for myself and me competing, I will give that up. And so clearly kids are going to pick themselves first because yourself are going to carry on versus the four years. And 
you tell me you creating uh my mind had creativity and to have have initiative and then when I do that and I'm doing it for the right reason. I'm doing it legally and you telling me I can't do it. And so in order to keep the players, the, the best players, and we, we even call my minor sports. You know, you had, uh, you, you got to be able to change for the time. The world today is entrepreneur. Mm. People can hit a pay, can hit a ping and make six figures. Mm. It's much easier to make money now based on your skill level. Mm. Wow, that's a great, that's a, that's another podcast <laughs> unto itself. That's a great. That's it. No, I mean, really, because, you know, we grew up and I grew up in the thing where, you know, your your parents, all they want you to do is get a job and go work for somebody. Right, right, right. And what you're saying is that now. No, not anymore. Yeah. Now it's a whole different, it's a different thing. And Mm -hmm. you're saying athletes, I guess, high profile athletes are in a position where they can kind of do their own thing in a way. They can make money. That's right. And even the high profile, let's just say we're talking about HBCUs. And you can't, as an institution, pay for the kid. Why can't the kid have a camp at home? Right. A, a, a kicker camp, a summer camp for volleyball players at their home, $10 a head, and they made money themselves, mm. legally. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about a car dealership. We're not talking about, a, a, if, if it got to be, Put a account for how much money they can make, but only the only can make it in the summertime, or they got to report it like income tax. All those things, all kinds of ways you can do this. Just those things going to attack amateurism. That that day is gone. That train is gone. Right. right. Who who is gone? <laughs> so why do you think something like this is taking place now? Is it because of today's time, or it's happening because you got student athletes? who have told that you must shut down your YouTube station. You must not uh, do the fashion week. You can't, uh, you can't do anything that's going to harm your eligibility. And they said, I will let go of my eligibility and I will stay in the money-making business for me and my family. Mm. This happened twice. The, the kicker from UCF, and the two basketball players who were on the fashion, and they decided to give up their eligibility and to stay on the fashion side. So, like I said, you can continue to have top players, and, and they're making a statement mm. for themselves. Uh, there's a young lady that I know was uh, she wanted to be on the board, and it, it's a whole. I'm I hate that I can't remember the name of it, but it's an access group for student athletes who want to be uh, entrepreneurs. And they, and they have gone to the NCA and said, this isn't fair. Uh, how many, I mean, again, you can't write a book. You hear what I said? You can't write a book and, and get paid yourself. Mm. You can't have a T-shirt company and get paid yourself. Totally now, how many, how many kids have a party and, and they have a production party? And how many people, a regular person on a college campus can make money, but a student athlete cannot. It's mm. almost like you keep, I mean, we use the word servitude, but that's kind of what they're treating like. The only people who can make money yeah. with your labor is us. It, 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 then the, the schools are saying no because they're trying to not be in violation of NCAA rules. So I can't say it's the institution. It's the NCAA, and they're going by amateurism. The fear is if a, you go be owned by a bigger entity. And there's ways to go about that. 
but don't hurt the young kid who has a creative sense and can get paid for making T-shirts. Thank you so, so much, Monique. We appreciate all of your input. You had a lot of great statements. And if our listeners would like to learn more about your work, how can they follow you or contact you if possible? Well, I like LinkedIn. Uh, Monique A.J. Smith. That's where you can find me. I do have my own podcast, but uh, that podcast uh, pertains to African-American female athletic administrators, and that's called A Chat in the Garden with Monique A.J. Smith, and you can find that at chatinthegarden.com. Thank you so much for your time. Monique, thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. So we're going to end the conversation there. And before we close out, we're introducing a segment called Bravo Nabro, where basically we share what news we liked and disliked this week. Kevin, you can go ahead and start us off. My Bravo this week is seeing the Dolphins defensive back um, Manika Fitzpatrick request a trade out of Miami. Because if I was playing there, I want to get out of there quickly. They're on the fast track to nowhere. I think they're about to get blown on each game. So I don't blame him. My nah, bro, it's him. Everybody called Cam Newton overrated. Um, listen, I still think Cam's a quality quarterback. Um, he's got to get healthy. You know, it's clear his, his shoulders are messed up, but he's just, he'll be fine when he gets healthy. Like Jason said, he was naming the, his accomplishments. He's still quality. What about you, Bill? My, my, uh, my bravo is for the New England Patriots signing Antonio Brown. My nah, bro, is for An- Antonio Brown. <laughs> Well, my nah, bro, is that uh, the Panthers lost yesterday, and that's our second home loss, and I was just not happy about that, especially to the Buccaneers, but it's okay, we're going to get together, and my bravo, I don't know if this relates to sports or culture, but it's supposed to be a full moon, and I've heard that like a lot of weird things happen when there's a full moon. So I'm just interested in seeing that because I never got to experience one personally. So I know that's kind of like very left, but yeah, that's my bravo. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. See, thank you. I mean, but who are you? Who are you? Who are you thinking? Isn't that kind of like God? <laughs> <laughs> All right, take us home. Take us home, East. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. And if there's anything you'd like us to cover, if you want us to leave a comment, tweet us at the undefeated, hashtag Rodin Fellows. You can also contact us directly. Me personally, I am on Twitter at Eastockery. That is E-A-S-T-D-O-C-K-E-R-Y. And you can find me on Twitter at Kevin Paris Jr., K-E-V-I-N-P-A-R-R-I-S-H-J-R. I'm at at W.C. Roden. That's at W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. And somewhere out there, I've got an Instagram account. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm East Dockery, and I've been your host. Get all the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones, and Morning Roast by subscribing to the Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make the Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.